0: Welcome to Mortals,
1: a podcast where we explore how humans have
2: managed their dead throughout history. From barrows and burials to cremations
0: and kurgans. We are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world. Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious,
2: or the curiously morbid. This week, we are talking about a morbid medley of death gods and fiction, a roundtable discussion between all three of us.
0: Please be aware that this episode does not need a content warning. So uh, enjoy, folks. Now let's get on to the show.
1: So let's crack right on in so this week we are discussing death gods in fiction and i your resident uh literary nerd all i do is fiction stuff i do not have the same historical or research background as my other two splendid co-hosts i'm gonna walk us through a little overview of death gods in fiction what do they do what are they what are they good for why use them
2: why are they here Why Why are are they they in my closet?
1: (laughs) I feel like you should call somebody if you have a death god in your closet.
0: Absolutely. Uh,
1: (laughs) An exterminator, maybe an exorcist. So, and we're talking in fiction generally. This is not just in books, though that's my background. We're talking in films, in video games, the the whole gambit. So death in most fiction is kind of treated as the great antagonist. Right? It is biggest risk it is the highest stake it is the most tragic thing that happens but when you personify death into a godly type figure that functions a little bit differently so there's lots of ways to render death but deification or the making of a deity out of something turns it into a figure and an agent that has the power of choice so in some cases the deification of death into a moral agent of some kind is a means of creating the delusion of reasons for death as a means of grappling with the grief and the trauma of loss. It can be an attempt to seek justification or closure around death, but it creates an agent that is capable of making choices and that is capable of taking actions. And the way that that god is built also says a lot about the world that it's set in as well as the creator's uh, views both culturally socially and personally about how that they how they are choosing to personify death and why it's been lifted into this godly position so we're talking about three kind of very different versions of death gods death deities throughout this Um, and i believe christia has some questions as well to kind of guide our thinking in our discussion
2: uh Yeah, I do. So um, I guess one of the first ones is, how does your particular death god act within the context of their world? Are they kind of more of a merciful figure? Are they more of a grim, like a grim reaper who comes to collect the souls? What aspect of death do they kind of embody? So another question, I guess, is, If it's available um, within the context of your set story, of your set fictional piece, um, and this very much ties into the first question, but how do just the regular mortals in that universe react upon interacting with that death god? Do they react with awe? Do they react with fear? Is it very much dependent on the situation? So the Death God that I am bringing to our show and tell of Morbid Medley today is um, not from a book or a movie, but actually from a video game called League of Legends. Um, If you know what it is, um, please don't judge me by the fact that I play it. Yes, I'm a very angry person. That's all you need to know. (laughs) Everybody who plays that game is awful and we're all really angry and that's just kind of all you need to know. Um, oh because it is a multiplayer online battle arena game. And the premise of it, of, of its most basic game mode, is essentially capture the flag. Uh, two five-man teams face off and are trying to destroy the enemy crystal or nexus. And there are a number of like items that you have to buy for each champion. And there's different roles for every champion. Blah, 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 blah. That's not the, why we're gonna, I could talk about League of Legends a lot because I do really enjoy the game and I've got like a five man team that I play Clash with but um yeah I really enjoy it and it makes me really angry at the same time (laughs) you gotta release that anger in a healthy way (laughs) it's It's not a healthy way though
1: it's really not (laughs) emotional education is a very important part of fiction even if that fiction just makes you rage
2: (laughs) it's like those guys who go and play golf and then they're just like you know beating their golf clubs into the ground, and they're like, I'm relaxed, this is me relaxing. Like, they <laughs> just ruined some yard lawn keeper's day. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, it's a really simple concept, basic game mode, the summoner's rift, which is essentially capture the flag, two five man teams. You're playing with random strangers on the internet, unless you have like a pre made team. So, that's kind of where the toxicity and saltiness comes in. So Players of League of Legends have a roster of like nearly 100 different champions. It might even be over 100 at this point. I don't know. They yeah. release so many so fast. Um, and they all have their place and different roles that you can play on the map. Um, but there is this really extended and expansive lore of the League of Legends universe. And like it's super fleshed out. And the lore has absolutely no impact on the game all of the characters, like, there's different regions that all the characters are from. There's, like, a full, like, like, they actually have, like, a, a world map, and all of the characters are from different parts on the map. Oh, wow! And, um, there's, like, extended storylines that Riot Games, the company that created and develops the um, that they use these story extended storylines to sell skins of their champions. Um, currently the event that's going on is Ruination, so it's a bunch of spooky skins. Um, but essentially, Riot has essentially turned a pretty basic game of Capture the Flag into a massive money maker. and they have like fully animated music videos starring some of their champions in like K-pop style skins. Not to oh, mention it's... that they actually have like an animated series coming out this fall that oh, I'm wow. stoked okay. for.
1: I've so. seen some of the animated music videos, and they're, I'm like, God, I wish this wasn't League of Legends, because this is dope as hell. <laughs> I know, right?
0: Like, <laughs> like, I mean, I you don't if you like... enjoy the music, then.
2: Yeah. I don't like, like K-pop. And you know what? I have the uh, Evelyn theme on my phone that I listen to an embarrassingly long- large amount. But I'm also an Evelyn Maine. Shout out to all my fellow junglers out there. You gotta rep your girl. Yeah, she's the bomb. I'm definitely just like the horniest character in the entire game, which is a little <laughs> bit uncomfortable sometimes. But other than that, it's great. <laughs> um, but, but I'm not talking about horny demon lady, but instead we're talking about death gods. So as I mentioned, there are like dozens upon dozens of champions with these fully fleshed out characters and backstories. And for a lot of their stories, they're open ended, making it very easy for Riot to pick up storylines and expand the world. Um, I really love it because it's following this constantly growing and changing like universe where they're like big world building characters that are leading political factions that are going up against other characters and other parts of the world. And it all ties together in a kind of neat way. In a Ooh. very neat way that makes them so, so much money. But, you know what, I'm... It's capitalism, baby. I don't know, I'm just here for the ride.
1: Tagline for this episode, it's capitalism, baby. <laughs> Talking about death gods. The
2: ultimate death <laughs> god is capitalism. For real, though. <laughs> boy. Oh, uh, don't come for us. <laughs> uh, so, essentially, the world of League of Legends is made up of a few different nations. You've got Demacia, Noxus, Zahn, Piltover, Shurima, Freljord a town called Bilgewater, etc. Some of them are more steampunkish. One is kind of like ancient Egypt. Another has like a Norse slash snowy kind of vibe. And you've got areas that are filled with pirates or the shadow isles, which is filled with wraiths. And death is something that is very common in a lot of the backstories of the humanoid characters, but there are also like minor gods and demons that you can play in league. Kindred is a champion that you can play in league who is not so much a God of death, but is rather an embodiment of death, if that makes sense. So they're kind of a dual yin and yang sort of entity, and they're personified as the lamb and the wolf. Mm. The wolf is a shade like wolf head with large teeth, wearing a mask that looks very much like a lamb, and lamb is a humanoid, fawn like creature who carries a bow and arrow and wears a mask with a wolf face on it. Hmm. We love some duality. Side note, it's super cool. Like the, like the character design on them is like, I think one of my favorites in the game. And like, uh, there's this just like the basic splash art is just really cool. I really like it. Um, the kindred are referred to as the eternal hunters, sort of acting like a grim reaper. And depending on how you actually face your death, will very much depend on who you see and who essentially takes your soul. Who kills you, essentially. Oh, damn. So, uh, from the lore page on the League of Legends website, um, it says, Lamb's Bow offers a swift release from the mortal realm for those who accept their fate. Wolf hunts down those who run from their end, delivering violent finality within his crushing jaws.
0: Oh, that gave me goosebumps.
2: They're like metal as hell. I love them. Um, And so like also when you play League of Legends, like the characters kind of interact with each other, even though that doesn't have any impact on the gameplay, like the first time two champions on opposing teams will see each other, they'll occasionally have like a voice line that's automatically triggered Mm. and they'll kind of beak at each other. (laughs) <laughs> or of course there's like a taunt. So and a lot of those have like lore nuggets hidden inside of them. Ooh.
0: Are they are they specific to which two characters are interacting or is it just kindred yeah. as standard lines that it says?
2: Well they they have like standard voice lines and then depending on who like there's some characters in league that have like escaped death. So they might have something like We're gonna get you. Not like that. That's like super lame. But way uh, way more poetic and cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they're pretty cool. But just to kind of round out the actual lore of them, of the Kindred, it's actually heavily implied by voice lines. And even in the trailer for Kindred, when the champion was first released, that they were not always a dual entity, but rather were once a very lonely man. Lem, tell me a story. There was once a pale man with dark hair who was very lonely.
1: Why was it lonely? All things must meet this man. So they shunned him. Did he chase them all?
2: He took an axe and split himself
0: in two.
1: So he would always have a friend.
2: So he would always have a
1: friend.
0: Metal, yeah. Oh my god.
1: Yeah. So That kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies there.
2: It's fucking oh. cool. I'll send you guys like, some like links after, like just to listen to like some of the voice lines. Because like oh, on man. one hand it's a super you know it's a it's a death embodiment, but then they also have voice lines where they're like making fun of each other, which is really funny. Like Wolf is making fun of Lamb for always reciting poetry, and Lamb is always making fun of Wolf for always being hungry. So when you play Kindred, do you play? Both of them just like alternating, or do they so, swap places? Or the way that League works is you have like a basic attack, and then you have a Q, W, E, and R ability, with R being your ultimate. So some of the abilities are lamb, and uh, I think like your basic, like ninety percent of your abilities are lamb, and then occasionally wolf comes in and will like bite like the enemy or the minions. Okay, that makes sense. But their ultimate move, essentially, is that um, they essentially have, like, a circle that they, um, like, imprint on the ground around them, and nobody can die for, like, 10 seconds or something while in that circle, and you heal a little bit, so they essentially stop death within the game. Oh, wow. Yeah. But getting back a little bit to the lore, um, they're actually, again, according to the League website... There's actually, like, different practices and interpretations of Kindred in the different regions of the League of Legends world, which is really cool. Because we kind of have our outside perspective of them, but I think it's just really neat that there's different interpretations and, like, practices concerning the Kindred from within the world. It says, when the final moment comes, it is said that a true Damasian will turn to Lamb, taking the arrow and... The pirate town of Bilgewater has a giant party in celebration of the kindred. Interesting. Like I said before, like, there's lots of little nuggets in the gameplay. Um, one of the characters, Ash, who is like a leader of the frailjord which is like the kind of snowy Norse inspired area. Um, but she has got a voice line about how she hopes to meet kindred with her eyes open. And yeah, there's just, there are really, really interesting character although they have been a little bit watered down with the recent lore updates and the ruination event but i still i still simp for kindred <laughs> <laughs> i just wish their gameplay wasn't so awful because <laughs> yeah. the lore is
0: so cool yeah that sounds really awesome like such a such a cool idea to have the the lamb with the wolf's head and the wolf with the lamb's head just the duality i really like that
2: yeah just a pale man who got so lonely that he split himself in two, so he would always have a friend. Like there is a like there it's a, it's a very poetic champion, I guess, and I just really like it, especially considering how fucking awful some of the other champions are. <laughs> I
1: yeah, that duality of uh, both the sweet and a violent death, mm-hmm. right, and kind of that idea that you can face your death and make a choice. I think it is really interesting and and kind of part of the function of being a. a an embodiment or a deification
2: mm-hmm.
1: of death and while you were explaining I was kind of thinking about kind of the Judeo-Christian splitting of the afterlife right into you've been good and you've been bad right but kind of turned sideways in the you accept your death or you run but either yeah. way you you, you, you get God in the end yeah <laughs> which I thought was really interesting
2: yeah, um, another kind of comparison I want to make to deny kindred is to deny the natural order of things. It's to deny, like, everyone, everything is supposed to die. Like, I think even yeah. they know that one day they will fizzle out as well. I think that there's even a voice line somewhere that's like, who will hunt us or something along those lines. And it just kind of reminds me of um, grave clerks in D&D and how they're super, oh, like, yeah. Obviously, like, you don't have to play your grave cleric this way, but they're very anti-undeath. Like, they believe mm-hmm. in a in a good death. Like, you know, undead beings are just kind of dirty and not, not good. Like, more so than, you know, an average person seeing something like a wraith or something. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting. Also, just another D&D comparison... The person who voices Wolf is the one and only Matt Mercer, who is the Critical Role what? DM. So. Oh my god. Yeah. The man is there. everywhere. Yes. Yes, he is. Somehow made this about D&D, but Kindred's awesome. Pale man, split himself in two, so he would always have a friend. Oh gosh.
1: Also, everything is secretly about D&D. We should all know this by
2: now. <laughs> D&D can be related to everything. That's but funny. that kind of wraps up... What I have to contribute to this morbid medley? Um, what have you got for us, Mariah?
1: So is Mariah's I
2: have... morbid medley. It is. It's time to be right in the middle. Hello.
1: So <laughs> this was actually a suggestion from Janine, and I kind of jumped on it because I was having a really hard time coming up with a death god because I've just been reading a lot of science fiction over the last two years, uh, and books are my main form of media. So, the death god that I'm actually talking about is the forest god from Princess Mononoke, or Mononoke Mononokehime, um, which is the 1997 Heo Miyazaki Ghibli film, and is really, to me, seems like the angriest and most poignant expression of Heo Miyazaki's intense devotion to environmental protection. If you didn't know, Hayao Miyazaki, the one of the co-founders of Studio Ghibli, which was responsible for films like Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, um, Kiki's Delivery Service, Tororo, and many other classic animated films out of Japan. Uh, He is very passionate about environmentalism. It's a theme you can see through a lot of his work, but Princess Mononoke really hammers in on it. Um, So there will be spoilers for the film if you haven't seen it. So if you haven't, you should pause this, go watch it, and come back. Because it's fantastic. And I've watched it far more times than any human should watch one piece of media. But But that's just how I watch films. So a brief overview of how we end up in the situation where we're meeting the force God, what kind of context they exist in. So the film follows Ashitaka, who is a young Amishi prince. And the Amishi people have been, quote-unquote, eradicated for about 500 years. And there's... They aren't actually eradicated, but there's very few of them left. And they live in the far, far east. There is a boar god from very, very far west that has been poisoned and corrupted and has become a cursed being of death and, and poison itself that comes towards the Amishi village, Ashitaka takes it on, and in doing so, incurs some of this corruption, which unfortunately leads to him being exiled from the village and sent out to try and find answers um, and a possible cure for this curse, which he's told will probably cause him great pain as it grows and then eventually kill him. So we're starting with a character who is looking for An explanation, a reason for his impending death. Within the body of the boar god who speaks a curse unto the Amishi people as it rots away, um, within its body is found a ball of iron ore, which they believe is what killed him. And so they send Ashitaka way out west. So he goes way, way out there. You know, he encounters some samurai who are attacking a village. And he eventually makes his way into the forest capital f forest and this is set up as an extremely ancient forest right like this is the land before time not to make too many dinosaur (laughs) references but it's so old that it is the home of gods and i don't know how much this plays into kind of shinto ideas about deities and spirits inhabiting parts of the natural world um But that's part of why when we talk about mount fuji in so in japanese mount fuji is called fuji-san and something like maru mountain in sapporo is maruyama san is actually a sign that the mountain that it's referring to is the home of a deity versus mountains that are using the term yama which means mountain is just a mountain so maruyama is just a mountain fuji-san is the home of a deity so there's a little bit of that with the Kodama, which are the small white spirits with clicky heads and butts, for some reason. that <laughs> um, You see that are the little spirits of all of the trees in this forest. So there's multiple gods in inhabiting these mountains. But Ashitaka's first contact is actually finding wounded ox drivers in the river. And he briefly sees Moro the wolf and San, who is the human girl who's been raised alongside the wolf cubs of Moro, he endeavors to take these injured men back to their town. So they are from Lady Iboshi's Iron Town. Along the way, he does kind of stop at this deep inner grove in the forest, and has his very first sighting of the forest god, who is, mm. upon first impression, kind of a weird fucking looking thing. This is um many ho- many antlered human-faced, tri-toed deer. Everywhere it steps, life blossoms and then dies around its feet. And it is not necessarily a god of death at this point in the film, but we'll get to that. So Iron Town is an iron-smelting town that is pulling ore out of these ancient, ancient mountains. Ashitaka discovers pretty early on that the boar that gave him the curse that made it all the way to the Amishi village was a boar that had attempted to protect the forest from clear-cutting to get at the ore sort of thing, and it filled him with so much hatred and violence that he became a cursed source of pollution himself after being shot by Lady Eboshi. So we have this site of industry and of natural exploitation going on, which is complicated by the fact that Lady Eboshi, despite being a relentless... Weapons developer also works really hard to buy out the contracts of every brothel girl she meets so they have autonomy and they have work. She takes care of leprosy patients. So there's a little bit of a a self-awareness of the benefits of this sort of industry. But this is where a lot of the conflict comes from, is the attempted exploitation of the forest and the gods of the forest trying to resist these attacks from Irontown. And it's a very a contentious balance at the time that Ashitaka arrives. In the background, the emperor is getting real, real fucking old. So he sends this monk who runs super fast on very tall sandals um, and his hunters to kill and bring to the emperor the head of the forest god, believing it will bestow immortality. That is not what happens, unfortunately. Two of of the minor guards, Moro and one of the other boar gods get into a bit of a tiff in the inner grove, the forest god is like, let me deal with this. He doesn't, they don't actually say anything because they're they're a human-faced deer um, who is the, the big guy in the forest and kills them both.
0: That's one way to deal with your problems.
1: Yeah, it's just take the life out of them. San and Ashitaka are kind of like, what the fuck just happened? Why did you do that? But this is one of the deifications that really resists that appeal to reason for death because it is a force of nature, it's not a speaker, it's not despite having a semi-human face it is very distinctly not a humanoid character, it's not a humanoid figure in any way, and it's not a representation of human values in life and death
2: that definitely I feel like comes through in the design of um, this god, because like, it's kind of a kids movie but like, Mm -hmm. you look at it and you're like, oh like you feel a little bit
0: uncomfortable. When you Damn, first see that's it. creepy. Yeah, that's how yeah. I felt.
2: Yeah, yeah. You definitely look at. It, you get a little bit of not quite an
1: uncanny valley, but like a, that's a thing that shouldn't be.
0: Yeah, yeah, vibes exactly. From
2: it, and very much.
1: heebie-jeebies. and I've watched this film so many fucking times, and he still, it still gives me the heebie jeebies a little bit to look at it. But during this conflict, uh, the the monk on the tall stilts and Lady Eboshi both take fire on the forest god. So the first shot, they shoot it straight through the temple, and it's like, huh, kind of takes a step, but heals itself. Because it's the god of a very ancient, interconnected, long-standing forest, right? It is the central figure of this huge ecosystem. Unfortunately, the next attack does take its head clear off, and this is where the forest god devolves into... A life-sucking monster.
2: Would you say that it's a, a de-evolution? Or would you just say it's metamorphosis?
1: Um, I'd say that it, it's very symbolic of the effects of destroying and causing cascades within environments that we rely on to survive. And that if you hit a toppling point, the the death that follows from that is all-encompassing and without discrimination. Oh,
0: God. Existential crisis incoming. Hey, <laughs> okay, in yeah. completely
2: unrelated news, did you guys hear that the ocean's on fire? No.
1: I did. <laughs> the causality in an ecosystem is very... It topples down really quick, right? The Red Queen hypothesis that every living thing must be going at maximum evolutionary speed in order to not go extinct. Climate change is causing huge problems within our local ecosystems and heo miyazaki being the kind of devout semi-alarmed environmentalist that he historically has been i feel like is making a very angry point here where the the imperial interests and the industrial interests have killed the heart of this forest which means that it will not function correctly the balances will be skewed. And it will kill everything. And in the film, this gelatinous kind of remnant of the forest god devoid of its head does kind of reach into the sky and then just spread out like a gnarly, gnarly umbrella, killing everything that it touches indiscriminately. Humans, animals, trees. Long story kind of long. Um, Ashtak and San do manage to return the head to the forest god, which helps restore life to the mountain but not life as it was if you've driven through an area that's been scoured by wildfire like much of the bc interior has there are lots of spindles like these darkened toothpicks sticking out of the land even though there there's green brush underneath there's flowers there's grass and stuff it is not the forest that it was and it's said pretty clearly in the film at the end there, that the forest god is dead. It is no more. That heart of that ecosystem is gone, and it has been toppled in a way that allows it to be further exploited. So the the, the forest god in Princess Mononoke, as a death god, I think is much more symbolic of uh, real-life fears of climate and environmental da- disaster, and kind of how that comes about, and the, the cascades of consequences that... Roll in all directions, as the as the headless forest god does from the sky. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Very true, neutral death. Nature is death. Yeah, it's the natural it's... way of things. There's no. There's no turning back from it.
1: Yeah, it's not a it's not a moral agent of death like many death gods are because of the kind of figure that it is, and that. Because we do have other characters that fill those liminal spaces. Right? Ashitaka comes from a very old people who, from what little we see, seem to be very um, in tune with their natural environment. And very kind of seeing themselves as on equal footing. So not prioritizing humans over other, uh, over non-human animal species environments. And then you have Son, who is raised with wolves, but is very much a human so they both kind of occupy this liminal space between the forest and iron town which in the end does survive with the promise that it will be remade better
2: to kind of <laughs> make a comparison between kindred and the forest god forest spirit like the forest spirit like you said it's it, like janine said is very true neutral and i yeah. think that the kindred it has a bit less agency it is less of a like death happens no matter what and i think they're just kind of there to help it along if that makes sense which is interesting whereas the forest spirit is i don't want to say all powerful but it kind of is it has pretty pretty good domination
1: of its domain
2: yeah which is just kind of an interesting like which is part of like the fun part of looking at this morbid medley is we can look at the different ways that death kind of operates and how these gods and like, yeah, how these gods operate within their death domain, which is cool. So that
1: sums up the forest God as the, as the central figure of death in princess Mononoke. I could talk about it forever, but that's maybe taking a little bit too much of the airtime. Janine, what do you have
0: for us? Ah, well in true rabbit owner fashion, I am a big fan of Watership Down, which is a novel that came out in 1972, written by Richard Adams, Um, and it focuses on a community of rabbits. They're not personified. I don't want to say personified because they don't act like people. They have their own culture, but uh, they have this figure within their culture called the Black Rabbit of Inlay, Uh, and that's what I'm talking about for our Morbid Medley. So before I get too far into it, I just want to, for people who haven't read the book before, just give you a little bit of context as to what the book is about. Um, I would appreciate that. Yes, I know, (laughs) not all of you have read it, so. Um, Watership Down is a book that focuses on a group of rabbits um, from the Sandalford Warren. So Warrens are what groups of rabbits who live together are called. So they're from the Sandalford Warren And one of the members of this small faction of the Warren is a seer of sorts. And he foresees the destruction of the Sandalford Warren at the hands of humans. Interesting. Tying into a little bit of what Mariah was just talking about. So he foresees the destruction of the Warren at the hand of humans. And so he's trying to convince his brother and their friends to leave. And he's trying to convince the chief rabbit, because the rabbits do have a structure according to this world that adams has created he's trying to convince the chief rabbit to move everybody from their warren but as an outsider he's somewhat of a an outcast within the warren he's not listened to and so the small group of rabbits breaks off and they leave sandalford warren in search of a new place to live so that is in essence the beginning impetus of the book is that they're looking for a place to settle down and live this group of rabbits So within that, you can already tell from the little bit that I've said so far that Richard Adams, the author of the book, has created this whole rabbit culture. Um, It's not just rabbits are doing these things. He's creating rabbits as a society based on their behaviors in the real world, living together and all that kind of stuff. So that's one of the reasons why I really like the book is because it creates this really interesting Well, what if rabbits do have a culture of their own and what would it look like? And it's really based on the ways that we observe them living in the real world. So I think it's really cool. Mm -hmm. And within that culture, they have a god and they have a death god of sorts. And they're kind of counterparts to each other. So the death god that I'm talking about is the black rabbit of Inlay which is how he's known to living rabbits. Sometimes they, most of the time, they simply call him the Black Rabbit. But he's also known as Inlayra Ra to his ghostly Owlsla, uh, which I will have to explain because yes. Adam's <laughs> writing this book about rabbit culture. He comes up with a lot of terminology and language unique to the rabbit. So the Owlsla is a word that's used for a... Group of guard rabbits for authority figures. The strongest rabbits in a warren. Also kind of like the ruling clique of mm. their social structure. So the owzla is how that's known. The black rabbit himself is a servant of the god, the rabbit god Frith. And Frith is really the sun personified or lapinified. They're not persons, they're rabbits. So lapin, lapinified. Um... As a god by rabbits. So Frith is the sun god. And Inlay is actually, in the language that Adams has created, is the Lapine term for moon or moonrise. So they're counterparts to each other. Uh But like the moon relies on the light of the sun to shine, Inlay is given his power by Frith. So he's not necessarily a, a god completely powerful god in his own right he always depends on the will and the the light of frith essentially
2: Neat.
0: um inlay the word inlay in the lapine language also has a second meaning so it's not just moon or moonrise it also is the word that the rabbits use for the land of the dead and the second meaning carries along with it the idea of darkness fear and death so you can imagine Rabbits talking about their death god, talking about the moon and the darkness and not being able to see around them as prey animals um, really carries that connotation of darkness, death, fear. Almost like night is a temporary death. Yeah, a little bit. So Frith is the representation of the sun. He's their main god. And then Inlay is the moon. So he's around in the fearful night. In rabbit folklore, Inlay is also an analog. He's basically an analog of the Grim Reaper, but also the personification or lapinification of death. His duty is to ensure all rabbits die at their predestined time, which is what he has predestined them to be. And he avenges yeah. any rabbit that's been killed without his Inlay's consent. Um, so that's his role According to the rabbits, this is all their folklore within the story. Um, That's important to keep in mind as it's their culture and what they believe. Uh, So I'll give you a brief description of what the black rabbit looks like in their folklore. So at one point in the story, and I'll get to this a little later, um, one of the storytellers that is along on this journey to find a new Warren, his name is Dandelion, Dandelion tells a story, a folklore story, of the black rabbit of Inlay, and he provides this physical description of him. The black rabbit smelled as clean as last year's bones, and in the dark, El Arrera could see his eyes, for they were red with a light that gave no light. El Arrera is another character within the rabbit folklore that I'll get to in a little bit. Mm-hmm. So he's got a smell as clean as last year's bones and really, really red eyes, that had a light but gave no light. So it's a very foreboding kind of image.
1: Yeah, kind of spooky.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's another quote here from the book <clears throat> The Black Rabbit of Inlay is fear and everlasting darkness. He is a rabbit, but he is that cold, bad dream from which we can only entreat Lord Frith to save us today and tomorrow. When the snare is set in the gap, the black rabbit knows where the peg is driven. And when the weasel dances, the black rabbit is not far off. And Dandelion goes on to describe, The black rabbit brings sickness too, or again he will come in the night and call a rabbit by name. And then the rabbit must go to him, even though he may be young and strong to save himself from any other danger. He goes with the black rabbit and leaves no trace behind. Some say that the black rabbit hates us and wants our destruction, But the truth is, or so they taught me, that he too serves Lord Frith, and does no more than his appointed task, to bring about what must be. We come into the world, and we have to go, but we do not go merely to serve the turn of one enemy or another. If that were so, we would all be destroyed in a day. We go by the will of the Black Rabbit of Inlay, and only by his will. That really gives you a good overview of how in folklore the black rabbit is seen yeah the black rabbit decides when you die and when it's your time to die you go so while it is a sad thing for a fellow rabbit to die it's not something that they really uh, stew over for long periods of time it's that's the will of the black rabbit you have to accept your death and go which i think is a really great Incorporation into Adam's rabbit culture because as prey animals, rabbits die all the time. And in yep. order to survive within your warren, if a few get picked off, that's the way it goes with prey animals. That's just a part of life. And so I think this is a really great folklore depiction of why and how rabbits might deal with that if they were if they did have culture like we do. folklore all that kind of stuff i think it's really cool
1: yeah and creating like a source of comfort in the very machinations of how death is viewed
0: yeah it's really interesting yeah and that's one of the big reasons why i love this book is because it's not just it's not just an adventure book about rabbits going off and hopping along and finding their new home there's this really deep uh examination of how might rabbits interact with each other how might their culture come across if they had a culture like humans do um, with folklore and stories and all that kind of stuff so dandelion the storyteller is a really big part of this and there are several chapters throughout the book that are just hey dandelion distract us we're scared tell us a story stuff like that so there's a few chapters like that and i think it's really fun um, so
2: um if i may insert a personal aside um so i think that like watership down actually came up during my anthropology degree
0: really um
2: yeah and i think like i i never like i said i've never read the book i've never seen the movie and i think the reason that I, like, somebody had mentioned it in, like, a seminar or uh, one of the tutorial classes, and I remember I went home and I looked it up on YouTube just to see if there was, like, somebody doing, like, a review or something, and I think the reason that I never watched it is because I thought that it was, like, a horror animation (laughs) from the, just from some of the clips that I saw, because it was, like, of course the one, like, of course the one thing I clicked on was, like, five gnarliest moments from Watership Down or something like that. And it was like I'm like, oh my God. What is this? And I didn't understand like the anthropological tie-in. And I'm like, this person's like I don't know what they're I don't know what they're smoking, but um this has nothing to do with anthropology. You guys are you guys are crazy. Yeah. That's so funny. I'm really Um, interested now, though, because when you said, oh, I'm going to do Inlay from Watership Down, I'm like, "Okay,
0: sure, (laughs) I'm sure it'll be great, but I trust you. (laughs) And it's really funny that you say that because there's a 1978 animated adaptation of it, and it's pretty faithful to the book, although it really condenses things because the book is quite longer than an hour and a half movie would be. And because it's animated, a lot of people think it's for kids. And it's not. not. always the case. <laughs> it's not. And there's a lot of people who their parents put Watership Down on for them, the movie, and it traumatized them because it's very violent. Because you can imagine. Yeah, like, yeah it is. <laughs> rabbits live very chaotic, uh, short lives in the wild. They're prey animals. They're eaten all the time. So yeah. it would make sense that the book and the movie adaptation that anthropomorphizes their life experiences would also be very violent um so if you go and seek out the movie be aware of that before you watch it it's not all smiles and rainbows it's definitely not all smiles and rainbows but it is really good i highly recommend it um chapter 31 of the book is really great where we get into the black rabbit and it's actually another one of Dandelion's stories. And he's telling the story of El Arreira and his encounter with the black rabbit of Inlay. So El Arreira, who I mentioned earlier, is a rabbit folk hero within the, the culture there. Okay. So he comes up in a lot of the stories and he's really the, the lapinification of, you know, any moral tale that you want to tell your, your young rabbits. El Arreira is the main character. Um, so the story of El Arreira and the Black Rabbit of Inlay goes as follows. Uh, the rabbit folk hero El Arreira and his companion, whose name is Scuttle, set out to <laughs> seek the Black Rabbit because El Arreira wants to sacrifice himself in exchange for his people's safety. They're in, engaged in kind of a war with this king rabbit who El Arreira had previously tricked and bested. And that's a recurring theme with rabbits, as they really value trickery and... Uh, that kind of stuff, because they have to survive, right? And they to survive, yeah. they have to play tricks and they have to steal food and all this kind of stuff. So Elrera and Rabscuttle limped and stumbled through a bad dream to that terrible place they were bound for. Reaching a tunnel on a cliffside, they prepared to enter. But they realized what they had thought in the gloom to be a part of the rock was not rock. It was a black rabbit of inlay close beside them, still as lichen and as cold as the stone. So he's just upon them without any whisper or any sound to notify them. And they just come upon him without realizing. Terrified, they flee deep into the tunnel, but they find the black rabbit and his owlsla, so his guard rabbits, already waiting for them inside the tunnel. Elrera offers his life, but the black rabbit simply says, "'Bargains, bargains, Elrera. There is not a day or a night that a doe offers her life for her kittens.'" Or some honest captain of the Avsla his life for his chief rabbits. Sometimes it is taken, sometimes it is not. But there is no bargain, for here what is is what must be. So really encapsulating that. I decide what is going to be is what will be. There's no bargaining, there's no way of getting around it. Uh, however, El Arreira is determined, so he and the Black Rabbit play a game, and Elera again offers his life if he loses but the Black Rabbit says he will only take his tail and whiskers instead. Elrera loses the game they play, and his tail and whiskers are taken from him by the Black Rabbit's Owsla. However, still determined, Elrera returns and bargains again, offering this time a storytelling contest in exchange for his people's safety. Again, the Black Rabbit obliges the bargain, but if the story is not good enough, he is going to take Elrera's ears this time. I'm just going to read this quote because it's wonderful. Then the black rabbit told such a tale of fear and darkness as froze the hearts of Rabscuttle and El where they crouched on the rock. For they knew that every word was true. Their wits turned. They seemed to be plunged in icy clouds that numbed their senses. And the black rabbit's story crept into their hearts like a worm into a nut, leaving them shriveled and empty. When at last that terrible story was ended, Elrera tried to speak, but he could not collect his thoughts, and he stammered and ran about the floor, like a mouse when a hawk glides low. The black rabbit waited silently, with no sign of impatience. At last it was clear that there would be no story from El Herrera. So he freezes. Can't tell a story, and of course El Herrera's ears are taken because he did not win the storytelling contest.
1: Now he's a guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That is how they would look, isn't it?
1: A little bit.
0: The Black Rabbit does say, Elrera, this is a cold warren, a bad place for the living and no place at all for warm hearts and brave spirits. You are a nuisance to me. Go home. I myself will save your people. Do not have the impertinence to ask me when. There is no time here. They are already saved. So he's been in this liminal space where time doesn't mean anything. So Elrera and Rapskettle make their way home. And they find that much time has passed, actually, since they've been gone. Oh, the shit. rabbits who were fighting the king are now old, and the young rabbits who they encounter upon their return don't remember firsthand this war that they're asking about, which is kind of trippy. Um, and the story ends, as Dandelion's telling it, the story ends with Lord Frith, the sun yeah. god, appearing to El Arreira, who presents him with whiskers, a tail, and ears tinged with faint starlight. Oh, wow. Wow. So he set out to save his people, and I guess through persistence and annoying the black rabbit enough, (laughs) he saved him, though it's not 100% clear whether or not that was the black rabbit's plan all along, because he didn't really tip his hand as to what he had already planned. But in any case, he stole, or won, should I say, Elraira's ears whiskers and tail but he eventually got them Elrera eventually got them given back to him by the sun god Lord Frith. so I really like that story and I really like the way that the folklore is portrayed in the book um, and the way that the rabbits talk about death and the way that they perceive it I think is a really good reflection and it was a really great writing on Adam's part to consider how rabbits exist and their lives in our actual world and transpose that into the culture that he's creating um, without making it too fantastical, without taking too many liberties. I know when he was doing the writing for the book, he spent a lot of time studying rabbits and their behavior, which makes for a really great story, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, it sounds super awesome. And I I think you I'm sure that we've already touched on this, but I'm going to say it again. Um, I find it really interesting, just in cultural in general, how people treat death and how people treat, you know, death deities in their own um, religious practices is very reflective of, I think, their culture as a whole. And I feel like that is something that definitely shines through with, Watership Down, from what you've told me just mm-hmm. now, that there is that reflection. You know, he could have just had a death god kind of be mentioned offhandedly, but he not only set up a a deity, but gave it a voice, and he also kind of showed the reflection of that death god in the air quote people or lupine. The lupine peoples. The Laphon. rabbits,
0: The wabbits. The wabbits. The Those rabbits. wascally rabbits. <laughs> and
2: I think that that kind of reflection, because, you know, what is a death cod? What what's a god to a What's man? a death cod? What's a, what's a god to a non-believer? Not to fucking quote that song, but, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think that, you know, two sides of the same coin. You have to have, to have a death god, you have to have a people who believe in it. And there is a reflection on either side.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: If any of that makes any sense, or if I'm just waxing poetic here. No, I kind of had the
1: same thought occur to me that it's it's almost got a metafictional quality mm-hmm. to it in the role that it plays within its own context, and it's a really interesting reflection and, I don't want to say critique, but like a analysis or reflection of the way that we as as humans, the, the readers of this, perceive And talk about death. Because death is in everything. The fact that we're talking about death gods in fiction. And it's just one of countless ways in which death is represented to us. And kind of forced into our perceivable sphere. Every day. Even though we ourselves are not, generally speaking, doing much to try and come to terms directly. Right? We are not having our our moments of being told stories by death and rendered speechless and unable to continue by the reality of that situation so i think that's a really interesting kind of turn on it and a very clever use of narrative and of culture building that is i don't want to say missing but it's not as thoroughly utilized in in books and in fiction as it should be
0: because it's to immense effect Yeah, that's one of the main things that I really, really appreciate about Watership Down is it's not just a story and it's not just here's how these rabbits live. It's here's their entire culture. Like you would tell a story about a human culture. They're going to have beliefs and they're going to have stories and folklore and gods that they believe in, whether or not they have a material effect on the story itself it's important for the fact that you're building up these characters and by telling what they believe in their folklore, you are showing how they live and what they value, even if they're just rabbits, right? And I will say, as my final little thought to plug people to read this book, because I think it's great, is that obviously the the story itself is quite a, an adventure for these rabbits coming leaving sandalford warren and making their way and making their new home in watership down and there's a lot of snags along the way which is part of the great story that i didn't spoil so please read it (laughs) Um, by the end it kind of gets into this epilogue that's a little bit down down the line the timeline and the adventures of the rabbits themselves leaving sandalford warren and heading to Watership Down have been integrated within the the stories that they're telling at the end of at the end of it all so within El Arreira's adventures their own journeys have been integrated into that so I think it's really cool little oh, wow. meta moment and a comment by the author in writing it that culture is made stories are made they're not they don't just exist and they are continually changing I think it's really cool
2: back to like the heart of what you just said Janine absolutely um I think you know I, I mean me personally like I originally got into history and anthropology by reading Greek myth that is kind of how I got into everything and that's kind of why like one of my like favorite research points is like Roman Britain is because I love the stories and things that come along with culture and religion and belief and just you know history what are we if not the stories that we tell absolutely
1: yeah and fiction functions fiction is really important and i i will die on this hill that fiction is fundamental to human development social development and cultural development because it's a huge source of emotional and cultural education and in very nuanced and in ways that you can't really articulate otherwise right whether it it's like kindred the the value of of companionship and the inevitability of death no matter how you go whether it's the ways in which the folklore and the beliefs that we have sustain our motivations and give us the kind of the fears and the knowledge that we need to function as a society and to understand the risks that are against us, or gods that are symbolic of of wider systems and that are part of a collective life or death situation. Which is one of the great things about the diversity of death gods in fiction as well, is that it comes at it from so many different perspectives and in different ways that offer different opportunities to grapple with the concept and the agent of death, the great antagonist.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think is great is that the three death gods that we have each been talking about, they have, there's like a different take on death as a thing. So as far as the, the kindred, Christia's death god is concerned, it's you need to accept it. And if you accept it, you get the easy death. And if you don't, you get the hard death. So that's one way of looking at it. And with the, the forest god, it's that death and destruction and life are part of the same circle. It's a balance, right? And then with the black rabbit of Inlay, it's death is inevitable and it's predestined and you can't change it. Although the black rabbit will avenge you if his will is not the one that takes your life from you, Uh so there's a little bit, like a different take through each of these. That's really cool.
2: Through all yeah. of it though, memento mori, remember, one day you will die. Absolutely. Whether
1: that's by by Wolf, by Rabbit, or by Uzi Death God.
0: <laughs> humanoid dear human weird god thing.
2: Well, Thanks for coming along with for our first of hopefully many morbid medleys where we choose one central theme and we all bring our own kind of take on it and discuss it in a shorter format than other episodes so that we can kind of do a little bit faster and looser episodes and talk about more fictional and bigger and smaller sort of topics such as death deities and fiction. But thanks for coming along. And uh, remember, one day you will die. So uh, stay safe out there, mortals.
0: Mortals podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Tumblr at Mortals Podcast, and on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, mortals. Take care of yourselves out there.